Yes. Oh, that's it. Yeah, if you would. Doug and... I got one. I'm good. Test. Test. We're good. I was going to, when you start, I'm going to make sure that thing is. All right, folks, we're going to pick yeah. up in chapter 11. Uh, we finished up the first part of that. We're going to look tonight, beginning at verse 14 through 19. As we have already seen in the book of Revelation, it, it is very, le- very bleak and it is very disheartening. And I think that if we had to read through particularly chapters 5 through chapters 19 without anything other than the dark judgment of this world that we've seen there, I think it would be so discouraging that we probably wouldn't be able to finish the book. But every once in a while in the book of Revelation, God gives us a hope and a small preview of His wonderful plans that He has for us, knowing that He is still in charge. And as we look now at the end of chapter 11, we find that verses 15 through 19 gives us one of those hopes uh, that, that gives us a preview of what is coming. You see, there's a transition between what we looked at the last time and what we find in verse 14. We're told that the second woe is past, the third woe is coming quickly, and it will announce the outpouring of the seven bowls, which we will get to uh, in the future, of the seven bowls of God's wrath that's coming. The telescopic judgment of God is now in view as we near the last half of the tribulation. There in verse 15, the seven trumpets sound and, and the loud voices in heaven announce that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord. And the praises of the Lord are sounded. He is worshipped for His titles. He is worshipped for His triumph. And as the theme of this hymn goes forward, it's like a, a crescendo to the entire process of judgments that we have witnessed. Certainly it would make a good song. I think Handel had the right idea. As we read that verse, we may want to stand up. But anyhow... As we, as we really uh, look at these verses, we find that it's just a preview of, of what is to come and not what is actually happening at this particular time. The Lord is not officially crowned Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
until he has defeated all of his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. And this not, does not happen until later. Remember right now, the kingdom of this world is under the authority of Satan. God does have the ultimate authority and sovereignty over the world, but he has yet to take control. And Revelation is about the gradual taking back of this world by the King of Kings. But here in this 15th verse, we're given reasons to believe that the coronation of the king is not far in the distance. I believe that is true here in the book of Revelation, but thankfully I'm also firmly believe that that's true in the day in which we live. The king of kings is not far in the distance. We have seen the question asked more than once in the book of Revelation, how long? How long, Lord, until you come and take the kingdom? We saw in chapter 6 the souls of those who were slain, who were there under the altar. And they cried out, Lord, holy and true until the judge and vengeance, our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Well, finally in verse 16 and 17, we find that the elders help us to understand that the time according to the prophecy has come. We see these elders leave their own thrones. They fall down on their faces in worship. They give thanks because they see the king beginning to reign. We know the elders represent the resurrected, the raptured, and the transfigured saints in heaven. And we saw a similar scene of worship back there in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Now we do need to understand here in this verse 18 that the events described here are more than a thousand years apart. It says, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. You see, we know already there is a principle in biblical prophecy where two events are sometimes put together in the same verse and look like they happen at the same time, one after the other. But in reality, there is a gap in between the events as they take place. It's sort of like traveling in a mountainous area and and you look and there appears to be one mountain peak in front of you, but when you get closer, you see that there's valleys and there's more than one peak. And there's actually two or three peaks before you get to the top. A good illustration of this principle is in Isaiah 61, verse 2. The prophet spoke that the Lord had anointed him to do various things among them. He says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And then in Luke 4, verses 16 through 21, Jesus read to those gathered in the temple again from that same chapter of Isaiah. And he stopped reading in the center of the verse to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But he stopped quoting at that point because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet for the vengeance of our God. Now this verse is basically saying the day of vengeance of our God has arrived. There is an anticipation of the end. The first event that takes place in there in verse 18 is the anger of the nations and God's judgment of those nations. This is a fulfillment of Psalm uh, chapter 2 
where the psalmist writes there, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? He described the kings and rulers conspiring against God. And he says there in verse 4, but God will laugh at them. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Earlier we saw that the nations have walked all over Israel, including Jerusalem, and rejoiced at the killing of the two witnesses. And now they are angry at God's wrath. They believe they can wipe out God. They're ready to take on God. And then God's wrath against the nation is followed in this list by God's judgment of the dead. The phrase here in the time of the dead that they should be judged. And so there, picking up at verse 18, takes us nearly to the end of the book of Revelation. This is no doubt that this is one event that is very clearly located on the prophetic calendar. But the question is just when are the dead outside of Christ going to be judged? We find in Revelation, the 20th chapter, verse 5, which we'll get to, it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. <clears throat> Folks, no one can run away from the judgment of God. Revelation 20, verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up their dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. We need not forget that being dead does not allow us to escape judgment. Those dead, those who have rejected Christ, will come before the great white throne, the great white throne judgment. If their name is not found in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. We'll read about that again in Revelation 20. And don't forget, Christians come before the judgment seat of Christ, but not before the great white throne judgment. There will be about a thousand and seven years between these two judgments. The believer's judgment is at the beginning of the tribulation. Then there are seven years in the millennium, which is a thousand years, and then comes the great white throne judgment. After that, the judgment of the dead is followed by the rewarding of the saints. The saints are the believers of our age, the age of grace, those who fear His name, those who believe on Him during the reign of of the Antichrist. And keep in mind that this is not the order in which this is all going to take place. And then the final judgment, the end of the, the judgment of those who destroy the earth, they are the demons. Satan is the great destroyer. Anyone who follows him is a destroyer. We find in Isaiah that there's a difference between these demon creatures and inhabitants of the earth. He says there in, in Isaiah 24, 21, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones and on earth the kings of the earth. And so all of this is yet to come. This is just a broad brush statement of what will happen. We find the entire progress of Revelation is here in this 11th chapter, verse 18. And the rest of Revelation fills in the details of what he has just sort of given us a broad brush approach to. Here in this passage is the tremendous evidence of God's grace and mercy in a book of judgment. He pushes the picture of judgment aside and gives us a little picture of his love and grace 
and mercy and protection for us. If you remember in the beginning of this 11th chapter, we're given a, a vision of the temple. John was told to rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those that worship there. Now we said at that time that this was the tribulation temple and that it is yet to be built. Now here at the 11th chapter, we are given a vision of a temple in heaven. The temple in heaven is open so we can look at the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the visible signs of the presence and the divine power of God in our midst. It is God with us. We know inside of that Ark are the tables of the law, which symbolizes the encouragement of God's Word. There's the pot of manna, which is symbolizing the certainty of God's sufficiency for us. And there's Aaron's Aaron's rod, which symbolizes the life of God. We find this description uh, fulfilled there in Hebrews, the ninth chapter and the fourth verse. We may wonder why there's special reference to the Ark of the Covenant here. Well, this is to remind the people of God special covenant with His people, Israel. But the new covenant is the covenant in Jesus Christ with all of every nation who loved and believed in Jesus Christ. Remember at the Lord's Supper, when the Lord took that cup of of the wine that represented His blood, and He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This means that in the full display of God's glory and the destruction of God's enemies, God will remember His covenant and God will be true to His own. Whatever the terror, whatever the destruction to come, God will not break His covenant. The covenant that He made with His people and will not be false to His promises. So this is a, this is a picture of the coming full glory of God which is going to be a terrifying threat to the enemies of God, but it's going to be an uplifting promise to the people of God's covenant. Remember, it is the life of God within us that preserves us. Again, we see that there are earthquakes. Earthquakes keep coming up in the book of Revelation. For some reason, it seems God shakes the earth when He wants to get our attention. As Randy pointed out to us on Palm Sunday, Matthew 21.10, when Jesus came into the city riding on the donkey, and all of the city was shaken and moved. We know with earthquakes, people are driven out of their homes. They live in tent cities. Businesses are destroyed. People's hearts actually fail because of fear. Well, that's the way it's going to be. The earthquakes and the turmoil and people turning on one another. God gives us this picture of the coming kingdom, the reign of God, the vision of the ark, and all this bleak judgment to let us know that in spite of what appears, God is still in heaven. He's still in charge. And is still according to the 24 elders that said, one who is, who was, who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. As he says there in verse 17. We move to chapter 12. As we look at chapter 12, we see there are two great wonders or signs and a war in heaven. We'll look at the meaning of the symbols and the purposes of Satan since he fell from heaven. We'll also learn about our part in the heavenly war. 
history tells us that we learned something about the attack on Pearl Harbor. There was an underground war maintained against spy rings in this country and abroad. It is believed that these underwater, undercover operations were what kept our nations free from other disasters. They could have been as a huge, could have been as huge as the as the uh, Pearl Harbor attack. Well, folks, this is also true in spiritual conflicts. We have to know and understand our adversary, or we will be subject to surprise attacks and unannounced aggression. And it is as we study the scriptures that we become aware of the unseen. That warfare that takes place every day in the environment of the believer, we become aware of what's going on and we are put on on a caution to know what the devil is up to. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now there is a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Folks, we need to understand this is not a real person. It is an image telling us about a certain event that we need to understand. And there probably isn't anything in the book of Revelation that has provoked more diverse ideas than this first wonder. When we look at the different teachings concerning this passage, we find... First of all, that the founder of the Christian Science Movement, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, taught that she herself was the woman in that sign, and that the Christian Science Movement was the man-child to which she gave birth. That's not true. (laughs) According to Eddy, the dragon as seen there in verse 3 is the mortal mind that is ready to devour the teaching of the Christian Science religion. Not. And then the Roman Catholic Church teaches that this great wonder is Mary. She is pregnant with Jesus and undergoing her assumption into heaven. Again, not. You see, the problem is there's no place in the Bible that tells of her assumption into heaven. And why should she be in heaven pregnant when Jesus has already been born, crucified, resurrected, and is himself in heaven? And then some Protestants teach that the woman portrayed here in Revelation 12, 1 through 2, is the church. This again is not. The problem with this is the man-child brought forth is said to be Jesus Christ. However, the church did not give birth to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave birth to the church. And then finally we have the correct view. The only interpretation that makes any sense is that the woman in this passage is really Israel. This is in keeping with many Old Testament passages. Often we find that Israel described by the prophets as a woman in travail. In Romans chapter 9, we find that this is what the role of the Jewish nation has always been. God's plan for the Jews is found there in in chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. He says, Who are the Israelites to whom pertain this adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promise of whom are the fathers from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And so Christ came from the Jewish nation. Therefore, the woman in the sign is the Jewish nation, hence Israel. 
who travails to bring forth the Messiah, the promised seed, and the 12 stars on the woman's head uh, could also be called to remind us of the 12 tribes of Israel. We don't have any doubts about who the dragon is because verse 9 tells us that it is the dragon. It is the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and the angels were cast out with him. Now the second sign there in verse 3 is, is Satan. And what you see there is not a description of what Satan looks like. It is a description of what Satan is like. He is a dragon. He's a serpent. He is a deceiver. Verse 3 says he has seven heads. And we have learned over the past studies that we have that seven is given in the Bible and it seems to uh, portray completeness. The crowns upon his head stand for authority. Satan is the principle of this world. The strategy of Satan is summarized by Paul in his second letter to Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4.4 where Paul reminds us the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. The historic nature of this event has been given in the fourth verse of Revelation 12. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. You remember we've already said that these stars represent the angels. We find there in Job 38 chapter verse 7 and then back up there in 38 4 the Lord is asking Job where he was when he laid the foundation of the earth. And so in 38.7, he asked, Where were you when the morning stars, the angels, sang together, and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? We know the name Lucifer means star of the morning. And so in ages past, Satan was thrown out of heaven because of his rebellion. And when Satan fell, one third of the angels fell with him. We know from 2 Peter, the second chapter and the fourth verse, and from Jude, verse 6, that there are some angels confined to the bottomless pit, which will be opened later. But not all the angels that fell out of heaven are confined. Some are working with Satan to accomplish his purpose. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, the judgment of the great day. As he stands before the woman, Satan is waiting to devour her child, the son, as soon as he is born. We know from the beginning of the Bible, Satan tries to keep Jesus from being born and fulfilling the promise of God. We know that he motivated Cain to kill Abel, but God brought forth Seth. Satan caused such wickedness in the world that God destroyed the world with a flood. But God preserved Noah and his family. Satan stirred Esau to kill Jacob, who was in the line of Jesus. But God preserved Jacob. Satan moved Pharaoh to destroy all the male children of Hebrew families. But God saved Moses and countless others. When Jesus was born, Satan was waiting to devour the child, causing Herod to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. But Jesus was taken to Egypt for his safety. And we know Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the temple. But that was in vain. And we know that Satan sought Jesus by death of the scribes and the Pharisees when they took up, stone, took up stones to throw at Jesus 
But Jesus walked away unharmed. Finally, he had Jesus put to death on a cross. But instead of <clears throat> ridding himself of the one who would crush his head, which was his purpose all along, he set in motion the purpose of God that would once and for all rid the world of himself forever. Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven where he is now making intercession for us. When Satan saw that he couldn't destroy the body of Christ, Christ now ascended into heaven. He turned his attention to the body of Christ on earth, which is the church. We know first that the Roman Empire persecuted Christian church ten different times. When they were finished, the Roman Catholic Church took over during the Inquisitions. Historians tell us that during the Inquisition of Papal Rome, over 50 million Christians were slain. This is the wrath of the dragon against the people of God. There in verse 7 of Revelation 12, it says, And war broke out in heaven. War broke out in heaven of all places. We know that this is a war between Michael, God's angel, and Satan himself. It may be hard for us to understand that there is a war in heaven. But if you look over in Daniel 10, we are told about the wars that are fought in heaven. We learn that Daniel is praying, and the answer to his prayer is delayed for 21 days. It seems a hostile power, referred to here as the prince of the Persian kingdom, was able to intercept and delay the answer to his prayer. This Persian prince was apparently one of Satan's angels working on earth. The angel who was to deliver the message was finally helped by Michael and was then able to get the message to Daniel. Matthew 25, verse 41, speaks of the devil and his angels. The angels help Satan to run the world. Satan has an angel for every division of his enterprise. There is no such thing as abstract evil. Folks, there is no evil that does not originate in a personality. And as Satan runs this world, he assigns his administration to real angelic creatures. And so Satan has angels doing his work on earth and in heaven, but judgment is coming. Isaiah 24, 21 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones on earth, the kings of the earth. And so if it is true that Satan was judged at the cross, as John says in John 16, verses 8 through 11, where Jesus discusses the work of the Holy Spirit, saying, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And Hebrews 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 14, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, and that is the devil. And so we ask, why is Satan still winning? Because the ultimate victory has been won at Calvary, but it's still yet to be implemented in the future. The sentence has been passed, now it needs to be enforced. The fact that we do not enforce Satan's judgment does not do away with the fact that he has been judged. Calvary's victory was a victory that ends all claims that Satan has on us. So how do we enforce the judgment? We need to look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4, verse 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, the tool that enforces Satan's defeat is the tool of prayer. So as we saw in Daniel, one person praying on earth can move angels in heaven. We as Christians need to learn the power of prayer against Satan and that he will be defeated in his work. Folks, we're not engaged in the warfare if we're not praying against Satan. The judgment that was effected at the cross is enforced through prayer and will be completed. Satan is doomed. And if we don't enforce that judgment in our own lives, we will be victims instead of victors. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, we know that the Bible tells us that Job was a godly man. He was blessed above his peers. Satan, the accusers, actually challenged God. He asked God if he thought that Job would be godly if his blessings were removed. That he pointed out to God that Job would, be, uh, would face affliction. Well, God accepted the challenge. Of course, Job didn't know anything about this, and we are never told that Job ever found out about it. But you know the story. Satan was allowed to take away Job's health. He took away his wealth. He killed his children. He afflicted them with painful balls over his entire body, and yet Job remained faithful. This leads us to believe and to know that Satan still has access to God to accuse us. But we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. And when Satan is finally expelled from heaven, the accusations will end. From heaven he will go down to earth, and from there his path will continue downward. Verse 9 tells us that Satan has been expelled. He was cast to the earth, and the angels was cast with him. When Satan is cast out of heaven, three things take place. The first and more uh, most expected thing is that there's going to be praise in heaven. Verse 10 says, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down we find the heavenly voices expressing praise for four freedoms that will be experienced in the future day. The first is salvation. Here, salvation does not refer to the salvation of our souls in this present age, but to the entire concept of salvation. This includes the overthrow of Satan and the deliverance of creation from its present agony. Paul wrote in Romans, Chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creation earnest eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. Well, 
Likewise, it also looks forward to the day when Lord's return and our salvation is complete. The second freedom that we'll find when Satan is cast down, it refers to the power or the strength there in verse 10, the absolute power that will crush any and all rival authorities. Nothing in heaven, in earth, or under the earth will be able to stand against the power of Christ when He takes control of this earth in the future. The third freedom that we'll see that is described there is the kingdom of our God, which will include all of heaven and earth, the final phase of God's plan of redemption. Christ has not taken over the government, and that will be the, the, the final, the fourth freedom. He will have governmental authority over this world. Furthermore, he is not building his kingdom on the earth. However, one day he will set up his kingdom and it will be an awesome thing to see. Verse 11 and 12 proclaim the martyr's song. We saw back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, what what those martyrs are like. They were located under the altar. They're crying out, How long, O Lord? We know the martyrs in heaven are able to overcome Satan, for he is now not able to gain victory over them. Even though their lives are taken, they will win. Folks, remember, martyrdom is in itself a conquest of Satan. For the martyr, the one who has chosen to suffer rather than to deny his faith, and who refuses to move one iota from their loyalty, is the one who has proved superior to every seduction of Satan and every threat of Satan and even to the violence of Satan. We will find here a dramatic truth. Even today, every time we choose the right, when we might have chosen the wrong, every time we choose to suffer rather than being disloyal, we defeat Satan. The martyr in heaven overcame Satan in the same way we overcome him today by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, by the willingness to die for their faith. And so the victory of the martyrs is won by the blood of the Lamb. And here we have really two meanings here. First, we find out on the cross, and second, through His resurrection, Jesus conquered and overcame forever the worst that sin and evil could do to Him. We know he met the full assault of evil and overcame it. And those who have trusted their lives to him share in that victory. Those who are one with Christ share in that victory over evil, of which the resurrection is the unanswerable proof. Thank you, Lord, for Easter. The second meaning is that through the sacrifice, the first is through the resurrection, the second is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, That sacrifice is made for sin. Through that sacrifice, sin is forgiven. So when one accepts in faith that Christ has done for him, then their sins are wiped out. You might say the handwriting that was against him is canceled, and his sins are forgiven. And when one is forgiven, there is nothing for which that one can possibly be accused. The forgiveness which is in the cross has left Satan the accuser. No possible accusation make. Going still further, the martyrs are victorious because they have recognized, they have accepted, they have lived the great principle of the gospel. In fact, they did not love their lives even unto death. 
they did not consider their life was more important than loyalty. John said in the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter, verse 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Folks, this is not necessarily a matter of dying for our faith, but it is a matter of setting loyalty to Jesus Christ before safety, before security, before the comfortable way. And so we said that when Satan was cast out of heaven there in verse 9, that three things take place. The first thing was the praise that was in heaven. The martyrs can now rejoice. The second thing that will happen is that Satan is cast down from heaven and there is persecution upon the earth. So there is not only praise in heaven for his expulsion, but woe for the earth and its coming persecution from the devil. Satan's persecution on earth has been described as aggravated assault. He knows that he is doomed, that he only has 42 months left to wreak havoc. He is full of absolute fury that his days are numbered. It is an emotional rather than a rational state of mind. He gives everything he has to the assault upon the people. Verse 13 says that when when the dragon was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had brought forth the man child. And as we have saw here in verse 1, the woman represents Israel. We know that Satan has been after the Jewish nation since the beginning. He hates it because it is the Jewish nation that brought forth the Redeemer who is the ultimate victor over Satan. So he continues to hound Israel as long as he is able. Folks, make no mistake about it, Satan is the mastermind behind the persecution that has gone on for the ages against the Jewish people. There is a certain symbolism here. The dragon cannot injure the child. Can The dragon can injure the child by injuring the mother. That is to say, to injure Israel is to injure the church. And to injure God's people is to injure Jesus Christ. Verse 14 and 15 probably is a picture of the escape of the church to avoid persecution. The flood of waters which the Satan cast after the woman may have have representatives to the persecution of the church by the Roman Empire. In verse 16 where the help is brought forth so that the woman may allude to the conversion of, of Emperor Constantine and the bringing Christianity to the Roman Empire, which put an end to the persecutions. That was the, the relief, that was the, the uh, rescue that was presented for those folks who were under persecution by the Roman Empire, that Emperor Constantine came in and bringing Christianity to the Roman Empire, which put an end to those persecutions. Of course, Constantine had an answer for his own self when he was forcing people to become Christians. But many scholars believe that the first anger, which is described in verses 12 through 14, is directed towards the Jewish nation as a whole, both unbelievers and believers. The second anger we see in verse 17 is believed to be leveled at the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who would not take a sign on their head and were given witness to Jesus Christ. Now we said there were three things happening when Satan was cast out of heaven. First of all, there's praise in heaven. 
mainly the martyrs whose time had finally come. The second thing was that there was now much more persecution on earth. If Satan could not get to Jesus Christ, he would direct his attention to his people on earth. The third thing that will occur after Satan is cast down to earth is God's protection from the Jewish nation. God will take his people to a special place and will care for them. And while Satan is after them, they will not be able to, to, to be found. Back in verse 14, we're told the woman, and this being Israel, is given two wings of a great eagle to fly to a place prepared for her. This picture of the eagle, eagle's wing is a symbol of God's supporting arms. In the Old Testament, the eagle wings are the symbol of the upbearing arms of God. God said to Israel in Exodus 19, verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you, how I sustained you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. And in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 31, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Based on what we've read, this episode is estimated to last three and a half years. As we saw in chapter 11 in verse 2, there the time span is counted as 42 months. In verse 3, the time is counted as 1,260 days. In chapter 12, verse 14, it is counted as time, which is one year, as times, which is two years, and a half time, which is a half a year. And this will be during the last half of the seven-year tribulation period. The Jewish people will be prepared in their special place while God watches over them until Satan is dispatched by God. Satan may appear to win at times, but his defeat is certain. In Luke chapter 10, we are told that the Lord appointed 70 to go out two by two into every city and place. Verse 17 says, When the 70 returned with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Folks, to the eternal Christ, Satan's doom has already happened. But for us, we must wait for time to pass. I have a parable that was uh, penned by Donald Barnhouse, a biblical theologian. What he wrote is graphically illustrated the doom of Satan. It's about a man who loved to walk among some magnificent trees on his estate. But the man's enemy was constantly seeking to wound the heart of the owner. The enemy decided to cut down the most magnificent of the trees. But after toiling all night, he cut it down. He became pinned underneath it. His hatred was so strong that when the owner came Toward him, he jeered at him. The owner said, You thought you would do me great harm, but I want to show you what you have done. Then he showed him the plans he had made to have that very tree cut down so that he could build a beautiful house among the other trees. He held out the plans and told him to look. He said, The tree which you have toiled all night and which is the cause of your death is the tree which must be cut down to make way for my house. You have worked for me without knowing it, and your toil is for nothing, and bitterness is your food in death. The Lord is letting Satan do his thing. 
knowing that he has a plan. Satan's part of that plan, but Satan will not be around when the Lord decides to end that plan for him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for John. Lord, what it must have been for him to witness and hear and see all that the Lord had for him and contemplate what it was going to be like knowing that there was nothing he could do about it, just report it. We thank You, Father, that He has given us this Word. He's given us this hope that we who know You know that we have a place with You. And we thank You for that. Father, we pray that You'd be with us, guide us and direct us through this rest of this week and through Sunday as we come to Your house and worship and we hear the, the spoken Word. Father, we pray for Kevin and his family as they travel. We pray that You'd be with them. Keep them safe. Bring them back to us. Use him, Father, in your kingdom's work. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Good. We'll see what we got. And, well, if I can turn it off. 